is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning. Um, and there's no crush this morning, so... I think that scripture of God not testing us beyond what we can bear might come true if uh, Judah cuts the preach short for you. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you all on this first Sunday of Advent. Now, I grew up in charismatic churches, so to be honest, I wasn't really sure what Advent actually really means. So a quick Google later, I can inform you that Advent traditionally is comprising the first four Sundays to Christmas Day and has been observed by Christians since the Dark Ages as a time of reflection and preparation on the birth of Christ, of light coming into a, literally in North, Northern Europe in December, a dark world. And Graham has bravely left the topic broadly up to me. He just said, eh, Christmas, Advent. So <laughs> hopefully I won't let him down here. Therefore, I've chosen to talk about one of the aspects of the Christmas story that has always gripped me the most, of how God chose to come into our world, both as fully God and fully man, Emmanuel, God with us, is unbelievable, remarkable, inexplicable good news. For indeed, we live in uncertain times. Now, as a child of the early 90s, I know, don't look it, <laughs> probably look older actually with the hairline, uh, I was really fortunate to grow up in a post-Cold War peace. But our current geopolitical climate seems certainly the least certain of my lifetime. Indeed, this January 23, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists set the so-called doomsday clock. Now, obviously, only God knows what's happening in the future, not them, but they, they gave it the following summary. A time of unprecedented danger. It is 90 seconds to midnight, the closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. And I can hardly expect that they're going to be moving it further away from midnight this year, well, next year. We've got a current war still ongoing on, in, our, in our continent, in Ukraine, and that we've all seen the, hor the horrendous scenes that are ongoing in Gaza at the moment. We've got increasing geopolitical tensions between the West and China and Russia. We've got a worsening climate crisis that I think for the first time this summer really started to hit home to me that it is actually happening, that the world seems unable or unwilling to solve at the moment. We've got an ongoing cost of living crisis which disproportionately affects the poorest in our society, with currently one in five households that have children in it currently reporting food insecurity, which I think is a very nice, sterile way of saying they can't afford to eat. And for those of us who are Christians, we live in an increasingly secular society, which hasn't just moved away from its um, historical Christian underpinnings, but in many aspects now seems actively culturally hostile towards orthodox Christian faith. It therefore seems to me a perfect time, given its advent and all that's going on in the world, in all of this uncertainty and worry, to dwell on the promise fulfilled of Emmanuel. For it was into an arguably even more uncertain time that God's promise of Emmanuel was given. Cast your minds back, if you can, to 734 BC. And the kingdom of Judah is once again in crisis. It's been 200 years now since the death of King Solomon and the fracturing of that once united kingdom in Israel of Israel, and the 200 years since have seen both kingdoms basically constantly engulfed with war, both with each other and with their neighbours, and led by a succession of generally evil and ineffectual kings, with a few exceptions here and there. And so we come to the reign of King Ahaz, and also um, into the time of the prophet Isaiah, which if you want to read along, is, is 
summarized in 2 Kings chapter 16, but I'll, I'll read it out here as well. Starting from verse 2, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Both of the names here. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasures of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. And so it's into this context of Judah being attacked by Israel and Aram that God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz. And what struck me as I was reading this, I find it absolutely remarkable. It, you literally go from it saying, you know, Ahaz has gone as far as child, his own child sacrifice. That's how idolatrous he is. But in the context of Isaiah 7, is God has sent Isaiah to say to him, don't worry about it. Because I'm faithful to myself and my promises and to my servant David, I'm not going to let them overcome you. And so it's in this context we move into Isaiah 7. And as I first gives this message, Ahaz isn't that interested. And then in verse 11, he says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights, i.e. down in hell or in heaven above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? We try the patience of my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, as you know from the context back in 2 Kings 16, Ahaz isn't saying, I will not put the Lord to the test because he's being, you know, faithful or trying to, you know, be good. It's because he doesn't really care what God has to say. He's already decided he's going to ask the king of Assyria for help and put his trust in him instead. And it's in this context, both despite and due to Ahaz's unfaithfulness, that God gives this sign of Emmanuel. You see, the promise of God being with us is decidedly mixed for Ahaz and for the Jews at the time. In fact, if you keep reading through into Isaiah 8, the, this, the, the sign of Emmanuel is basically comprised of the whole three chapters from 7 to 9 in Isaiah. And you see in Isaiah 8, it's clear that Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz is both deeply mysterious but has portents of both near-term judgment and also long-term salvation. In fact, he says, essentially, because you've rejected my help and you're calling on the Assyria instead, he says, I'm going to bring against you the floodwaters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. So, that really just struck me that, you know, for Ahaz, God being with them, that's, we say it now in the context of Jesus coming, and it's, yay, God with us, but it's a deeply mixed sign for them. And just like Ahaz, certainly I, and, and I think we all too, struggle at times to trust in the Lord with all our heart and put him first. I don't think, and I hope none of us have gone quite as far in idolatry as to sacrifice children, but 
scripture makes it clear idolatry is not as simple as just, you know, carving a face into a piece of wood and worshipping it. It's anything that you put before the Lord. And we all struggle to do that. And scripture itself is full of examples of times when even godly people put their trust in other things, even temporarily. And this was literally just took me five seconds to come up with these examples because I think if you read through scripture, there are just so many. King David was proud and by force took another man's wife and committed adultery and had the, the husband killed. Moses and Aaron didn't trust in the desert of Zin where there was no water and so weren't allowed to enter the promised land. Jonah was way more interested in Israel's nationalistic success than actually proclaiming the message of forgiveness that God had asked him to forgive. And Peter feared physical harm. Near enough immediately after telling Jesus he would go with him to, to the cross and denied him three times the second his life was in peril. Paul, the super apostle, I'm calling him super apostle, but he was, he just was. Um, he sums the pro problem we all face up perfectly in Romans 7. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And I myself can think of so many ways in which I'm susceptible to idolatry. The longer I'm a Christian and the more I walk with God, um, what Paul says when he says, um, this is a saying trustworthy and true, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The longer I go on, the more I start thinking, no, I'm the worst. No, I'm the worst. And I think that's true for everyone. The more you walk with Christ, it's, we're all, we all know in our hearts, no, I'm the worst. And so we come to the crux of this issue and the crux like King Ahaz, God is holy, pure, perfect, just, and we very much are not. In fact, Isaiah 8, in chapter 14, the Lord basically says, he sums this up, he says, because the Lord himself will be a holy place, for both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Yeesh. What then are we to make of this sign promised by God of him coming to be with us? Praise God, <laughs> the prophecy and the story doesn't end there. As we move into Isaiah chapter 9, this sign of Emmanuel moves on from this near-term judgment into God's long-term plan for salvation. Nevertheless, as in nevertheless, even though I'm bringing judgment upon you, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Pitfall of a handheld mic. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now we read in chapter one of the Gospel of Matthew, it start when Joseph just found out that his fiancée is pregnant, which comes as a bit of a shock to him. And an angel of the Lord appears to explain to him why his fiancée is now pregnant and says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the, his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, 
the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Did you spot the apparent contradiction in the scripture there? Isaiah clearly says that they're going to call him Emmanuel. But the angel of the Lord instead tells them to call him Jesus, which is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Now, why the discrepancy? It would obviously have been an exact match if, if they'd instead called him Emmanuel. But as we've already seen, God with us is only good news if God is coming to atone for our sins. Had he, Jesus instead been called Emmanuel, it would have left a question mark, certainly to all of those first century Jews who were hearing the name. What is the purpose of God coming to be with us? Is he bringing judgment or salvation? And it, it hit me just as I was reading this, how I'd never noticed it before, how interesting it is that God says to use the Greek form of the name. I found that really interesting. He, could have said he should be called Joshua, which means the Lord saves, but he doesn't. He said, call him Jesus, which is the Greek transliteration. I just thought, isn't that just amazing? It's just a sign that, of how even from Jesus' birth onwards, God is planning to send Jesus to save the whole world, not just the Jews. And his name answers that question. Um, Jesus has come to bring God's salvation to all. This is what makes Christianity utterly unique. God is not some far-off, uncaring deity who sits separate from his creation, nor is he sort of an impersonal being or one of many in a pantheon of gods. No, the good news, the amazing, life-changing, life-saving news of Christianity is that God himself has come to earth, fully God and fully man. He lived and walked and ate on this earth just as we do every day, but unlike us, did not sin. Furthermore, he chose to experience suffering and a criminal's death so that we could be saved. Anyone who is at any time being subjected to listening to me talk about my favorite Bible verse will know it's Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, which I won't read out in full, but it's talking about Jesus as our high priest and why he is the better and the perfect high priest for us. And I love it because it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with, the, with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love it. I love it. Because we have a God who knows what it's like to be human, who chose to experience pain, and hunger, and fear, and temptation, yet overcame them all for us. What other faith can claim this? None. Nothing comes close to that. Emmanuel means that God is able to empathize with us, because he himself came down in order that we might be saved. This is the sign of Emmanuel. Not only that God is with us, but that he is powerfully, permanently for us, we left Romans 7 earlier with Paul despairing over his powerlessness over sin. But I left that passage prematurely, deliberately. So we'll read on an extra verse. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. 
Now, any of you who highlight your Bibles, if yours is like mine, just the whole of Romans 8, just, just massive, just basically, basically all of Romans, just bright green. And it, it, this amazing summary, I would argue, in my opinion, the best chapter of text ever penned by man, obviously inspired by the Spirit. In this amazing summary of the Gospel, Paul writes in 8.31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? I, if God didn't spare his own son, if God has come down in, as Emmanuel, if he's done that, who could be against us? And this is the message of Emmanuel, that whatever darkness we face personally, whatever fears we face, however unfaithful we are, however undeserving, and we all very much are undeserving, <laughs> and certainly I am unfaithful, God has shown in Jesus coming to earth that he is indelibly, undeniably, powerfully, permanently for us. And that's the answer to defeating our idols. That's the answer to approaching this darkness with hope. It's not by trying harder. I really loved what, what was brought earlier. As Graham said, it's not about trying harder. It's just not. That's just works. That's just another idol. It's just something else to bring before the Lord and go, hey, I deserve your blessings because I, I try really hard. It's not going to save you. <laughs> it's only by soaking this amazing reality of the gospel ever deeper into our hearts that we change by the Spirit's power. For when the light of Jesus is soaked into us, all the other lights, all those other idols, and the darkness around us grows dim. Thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for the wonderful gift of Emmanuel, that you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, would come down and humble yourself, come down and experience what it is to be a human being, Lord, that you chose for our sake to live a life where you were probably often hungry, where you experienced pain, where you suffered, where you experienced a criminal's death for us. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would let the reality of that seep deeper into our hearts this morning. Lord, I need that. Even as I'm saying it, Lord, even as I'm preaching it, I know I need to believe that more because it's true. You, the King of Kings, has come to earth. Lord, make that real. Make it more real to me. Make it more real to us so that we might be changed for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday morning.